Well, we do pray that uh, your lives are found in Him alone, because only He is worthy. If you will uh, grab your Bible and remain standing for our scripture reading this morning, and turn to Psalm 13, as that is going to be the text for Pastor Bruce's message this morning, as he continues in summer in the Psalms. When God seems distant, we'll see in uh, Psalm chapter 13, uh, using the text for this morning's sermon. If you need a pew Bible, there's one uh, in the pew in front of you, and you can turn uh, and find Psalm chapter 13. Follow along as I read from the text. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that when uh, things come up in our lives and, uh, and you seem, we, we think that there's distance between us and you, Lord, that you are there and that your salvation is sure. We pray that you would be with Pastor Bruce this morning as he brings your word. We thank you for your word and the way it changes our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Like David, have you ever felt like God has simply forgotten you? Like David, have you ever felt like God was far, far away from you? Like David, have you ever felt like God has turned his back on you? Have you ever wondered, where is God when life is is falling apart all around me? Like David, have you ever wondered, when, when will it just end? When will this cease? And like David, have you ever felt like, I just can't go on any longer? If you've ever felt that way, you are not alone. King David struggled with these same thoughts when he wrote this particular psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 13. And if you've been with us during the summer, throughout this series, Summer in the Psalms, then you know this is another psalm of what is called lament. And you can't help but notice here at the very beginning to notice the brevity of this psalm and even the honesty of it. This psalm is short. It's only six verses in length. And this psalm is its also very, very honest. David pours out his heart in this raw, undiluted honesty. And so what we have in this psalm here is total transparency by David. A crying out to God by someone who, who's on the, the verge of utter despair and defeat. And so this psalm, Psalm 13, it serves as an example of our, of our freedom as Christ followers, as believers in Jesus Christ, to, to be honest with God about how we are really feeling. Many Christians tend to either ignore their emotions or they try to suppress their emotions, but that does not make them go away. Telling people to stop being sad rarely keeps them from being sad. And ignoring our emotions just ignores the fact that we are created in the image of God and and God is an emotional being. All you have to do is look at the life of Jesus when he lived here on this earth. 
In fact, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, in their book, The Cry of the Soul, they put it this way when they write, Our emotions are the language of our soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. And they go on to say that the Psalms have a, quote, soul-exposing function to them. In other words, to, to ignore our emotions is to ignore what's really going on in our hearts. In the Psalms of Lament, they teach us how to express to God what we are really feeling, while also, and we've seen this already in our series, pointing us back to the God that we can trust. So how, how we feel matters to God. And in this psalm, David feels as if God has forgotten him. And now, God seems distant from him. Now, we do not know the exact situation or the circumstances that David was facing when he wrote this particular psalm. And and nor do we really need to know in order to feel what David is feeling. Because he's feeling things that we've all felt. He's asking questions that we've all asked. And so this psalm, it deals with the reality of what is happening in the heart of a man who is in utter despair. But this psalm also gives us a roadmap to how we should respond in such despair. In fact, notice this in your notes. Here's the big idea. Here's the roadmap that David gives us here in Psalm 13. When, when God seems distant, we should follow David's roadmap in the journey from anguish to assurance, from despair to deliverance, and from pain to praise. And so in the course of just six verses, David moves here, and perhaps you caught it when Zach was reading the text for us. He moves from crying out to God in dark despair to to pleading with God in earnest prayer to at the end here rejoicing in God for his steadfast care. And so this journey that David went on, it serves as an important roadmap for us. When God seems distant, And we ourselves, we find ourselves on the verge of utter despair and defeat. Now, you may have noticed in your Bibles the heading of this psalm. It's actually addressed to the choir master or to the chief musician, which simply means that this psalm was meant to be sung in public worship service to to encourage other believers like us who felt utter despair to follow David's roadmap that he lays out for us here in Psalm 13. So this psalm is more than just a psalm. It's a roadmap in David's journey from anguish to assurance, from despair to deliverance, from pain to praise. And as you look closely at this psalm in your Bibles, you'll notice some extra space between verses 2 and 3 and and even verses 4 and 5. And that space matters because David is moving through a process of lament. It's a journey that takes time. You say, well, how much time? Did it take an hour? Did it take David a day? Did it take him a year? And we don't know how long the journey of Psalm 13 took in David's life. We don't know exactly how long. And it doesn't really matter how long it took. What we do know is that lamenting takes time. And it can't be rushed. 
And so however long it took, David moved from anguish to assurance. He moved from despair to deliverance. He moved from pain to praise as he called out to the very God who seemed distant from him. And we need to follow the same roadmap that David gives us here. So when God seems distant, follow David's roadmap, number one, from crying out to God in dark despair. The first two verses give voice to what David is feeling in his soul. Notice David's despair in verses 1 and 2 again. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And you can just feel David's emotions in these two verses. David David feels abandoned by God. He's feeling oppressed by his thoughts. And he's being condemned by his enemies. And it's difficult to imagine anyone being more honest with God than David here in these first two verses. He, he's feeling anguish. He, he's even accusatory towards God. He's, he's anxious in his thoughts, and he does not hesitate to express all of this to God. And so with this escalating intensity, David asks God these questions that, that oftentimes flare up when we are in dark despair. Notice the first question here. How long will God forget me? You see, it feels like God no longer cares enough to pay attention and take special care of David. Remember the last time you felt that abandoned in life? In fact, this word forget that David uses, it means to to leave something behind due to forgetfulness. And, And we've all been there. We've all done that. We ask our spouse, have you seen my keys? We ask our spouse, do you remember where I left my phone? We lay things down and we... Forget them. And in the same way, David felt like God had kind of laid him down and just forgot about him. And it's not just forget for an hour or forgot, forget for a day or, or a week. David felt like God had forgotten him how long? Forever. In fact, it's interesting. David actually links together forgotten and forever in the same breath as two sides of the same experience. Why? Because to feel forgotten by God always feels like it's forever. So David is basically asking, Lord, do you intend to forget me forever? Because I don't have forever. I can't survive that long. I can't survive another day. How long, Lord, will you forget me? And so David is describing his his felt reality. He knows, though. And hopefully you know as well that that God cannot forget anything. Why? Because God is God. But for David, it sure feels to him like God has forgotten him. And that's his first question. The second question is, how long will God hide from me? This feeling always rides shotgun with the feeling that we've been forgotten by God. The hiding of God's face is actually an expression of alienation and even a curse. And so how terrible to feel like God has, has turned against you. And, and, and what's interesting is the blessing of God and the face of God, they go hand in hand together. And we read about this in Numbers chapter 6, 
24 through 26. Listen to what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And so, so when God shines his face on us, it's, it's, it's like God's shining his favor down upon us. He's blessing us. He's keeping us. He's being gracious to us. But when it feels like God is hiding his face from us, what do we feel? We feel abandoned by him. We feel even rejected by God. And this is what David is feeling. It's the question he's asking. How long, God, will you hide from me? His third question is, how long must I be discouraged? This is what David is feeling when he asks in verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? This is the point of despair where we begin to lose all faith in God's promises. In fact, this, this phrase that David uses, take counsel, it means to plan. So David is planning something now, or he has planned. And so David is now, in a sense, he's planning his own way out of the circumstances, whatever they may be, that's causing him all this despair. In other words, he's trying to resolve the situation himself, often like we do a lot of times. Why? Because at this moment in his life, he didn't think God was doing anything about his suffering. After all, in his felt reality, God has abandoned him. God has hidden his face from him. And so now I need to manage this myself. In fact, I need to manipulate it myself. But David's plans to alleviate his pain, to alleviate his suffering, have been unsuccessful. And as a result, he now says his heart is full of what? Sorrow. And sorrow here means emotional grief, affliction, and pain. And this sorrow, David says, has become his constant companions. Which shows that Christ followers are not immune to the seasons of sorrow, grief, and despair. This brings us to his fourth question, where David now asks, how long must I be defeated? David cries out in verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? What enemy? What enemy is David referring to here? Who is this enemy? And David doesn't tell us who the enemy is. We, we can make some guesses. Perhaps it's King Saul. That would be an obvious choice. Perhaps it's even his own son, Absalom, when he rebelled. But again, we do not know the situation. We do not know the specific enemy. Whoever it is, it is clear that his enemy is being exalted over him. In other words, his enemy was exercising domination over him. And if God continued to ignore David, that domination by his enemy would lead to David's defeat and perhaps even his death. And right now, in the moment, David's felt reality is that God has checked out. God is uninvolved while his enemy is being exalted over him and dominating him. And so it's no wonder that David now cries out to God in such dark despair. He feels as if God has forgotten him. He feels as if God is hiding from him. He feels as if God is ignoring him. He feels as if God is allowing his enemy to triumph over him. And if we are honest with ourselves here this morning, these feelings that are all of us have felt at some point in our lives as well. 
So we're really not too surprised that David feels this way. It's not all that surprising to read what he writes here in the first two verses. Why? Because we have all felt this way to some degree or another. And if you've never felt this way, praise God, you will at some point in your life, I promise you. You will. And so we've all felt this way in dark despair. And when, when we are in this situation, when we are in this kind of despair, notice, notice what we tend to focus on about it. We tend to focus not only on the depth of our trials and troubles, but also, in particular, on the length of our trials and troubles. I'm sure you notice David asked the same question, how long, no less than how many times? Four times. How long? In fact, that prompted Charles Spurgeon to call this psalm the how long psalm. The how long psalm. But actually, he said, we might call it the howling psalm. Might even be more of a fitting title because of the incessant repetition of David's cry for relief in this psalm. You see, David's despair is real here, and he feels he can't go on any longer. He's desperate for relief, and so he cries out no less than four times, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And so the intensity here of David's trials does not pain him near as much as the duration of it all. You see, David does not complain that the trial and troubles that he's facing are too severe, but rather that it has gone on way too long. In fact, it's lasting far longer than the mercy of God should allow in someone's life. You see, we, we oftentimes, we can put up with something, even if that something is difficult, even if that something is painful, even if that something grieves us, if we know how long it will last. But trials can be oh so unbearable when there's no end in sight. We can usually stand under short-term trials, but long-term trials just kind of grind us down over time. In fact, Del Ralph Davis writes, who's an author and, and, and pastor, he writes this in his book on the, on the Psalms here. He says this, and I quote, It's one thing to wade through crud and darkness and anxiety and mockery. But when you never seem to come out on the other end, when you seem to be marooned in the thick of the mess and hanging on by your fingernails and days pass and nothing changes and God doesn't meet your last conceivable deadline before you cave in, then what? How much longer? You see, the danger, he says, is not that we will blow out, but we will wear out. And to make things worse, on top of all this, David doesn't have a clue why all this is happening to him. Did you notice in the psalm, there's there's no confession of sin by David? There's no repentance by David here. There's no guilt that's hindering God's blessings. And so for some reason, the why behind all this is hidden to David. And it feels like God has simply turned his back on David. Now the feelings that David expressed here, they are honest. They are brutally honest before God. But let me just remind us that such feelings are not to be wallowed in. 
David doesn't stop here in verse 2, does he? Psalm 13 doesn't just have two verses. Psalm 13 is not verse 1 and 2, and that's it. He doesn't wallow here in verses 1 and 2. He may have spent some time here. We don't know how long it took him to, to spend time in verses 1 and 2. But he doesn't stay there. He doesn't wallow in his feelings of despair. Instead, he moves on in his journey. And so while we can certainly identify with David in his dark despair, he doesn't leave us there. Remember, this psalm is a road map in the journey from despair to deliverance, from pain to praise. And in order for us to do that, we need to continue to follow David's roadmap. We need to move from our first point of just crying out to God in dark despair. And again, don't minimize that. That's critical. This super important, this first point of crying out to God in dark despair. But we must not stay there. We need to move on to number two, to pleading with God in earnest prayer. You see, dark despair should always lead us to earnest prayer. That's the purpose of crying out to God in lament. You don't, here's the thing, you don't wait until you're no longer hurting. You don't wait until you're no longer despairing to cry out to God in prayer. Psalms of lament teach us, and we have seen this already, that trouble triggers prayer. And notice David's prayer here in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Now, do you kind of sense a logical disconnect here with David in this prayer? A logical disconnect. Let me help you see it. Let's trace David's journey so far and pretend you are in his shoes. You cry out to God. But it seems that God isn't paying attention to you. You think God's forgotten you. You think God's hiding his face from you. And yet, you continue to cry out, but there's no relief in sight. So what do you do? You keep on praying. But to whom? Whom do you pray to? To the God who has not answered you yet. Now, this is lousy logic. Lousy, lousy, lousy logic, but it is excellent, excellent, excellent faith. Think about it. You're convinced that God is forgetting you. You're convinced your felt reality is that God is hiding his face from you in your despair. And the next thing you do is what? Cry. You cry out to God in prayer. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. In one way, it seems senseless to do so. You bemoan a God who is not paying attention to you, and then in the very next breath, you nevertheless plead for his help. It may not seem logical, and the world certainly won't understand this, but it is certainly faith in action by God's people. You see, although David's heart tells him that God has turned away from him, he doesn't believe his own feelings. That's important because we live in a culture where feelings trump everything. Feelings trump truth. That's what we are bombarded with in our culture. But this is not where David allows him to go. 
in faith and by faith and through faith. He pleads with God now to hear him and answer him. And so we need to follow even David's prayer. And specifically, he prays three ways. Look at it with me. Like David, pray, remember me, O Lord. David begins with this word, consider, which is also translated as, as look on me, Lord. And so God's looking on one has everything to do with his care and concern for you. For example, in Psalm 9, verse 13, it says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction. See my affliction, he says, from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of, of death. So the idea here is that is for God to see David and to know what is going on in David's life. For God to come near and to act on our behalf. That's the idea. Now, is this not what every person wants to know when they are in despair? They want to know in that moment of despair that God sees me. God truly does. He really cares about me. He loves me so much so that God acts on my behalf now. And so, yes, David needs God's comfort, but David is also asking for God's active presence when he prays, look on me and answer me, O Lord. In other words, David is praying something like this, Lord, look on me and do something, anything. Number two, like David, pray, not just remember me, O Lord, but pray, restore me, O Lord. We see this request when David prays in verse 2. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This phrase, light up my eyes, it's a figure of speech to describe one's vitality and endurance. So David is asking God to restore his strength. It might be to restore his emotional strength, certainly. Obviously, it's also to restore perhaps even his physical strength, maybe even his spiritual strength, or all the above. And David reminds God that if he doesn't answer this prayer, he will, in his own words, says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So David is reminding God, if you don't answer this prayer, if you don't come through for me, I'm going to die. As one author says, David represents himself as a dying man, as one already half gone, who soon will be wholly overwhelmed with the darkness of death if the Lord does not give him new power of life. David feels so weary. He feels so exhausted. He feels so run down that he feels like he's going to die. And he desperately needs God to strengthen him. And so David prays for God to supply him with fresh strength, fresh stamina in the face of whatever trial and trouble he is enduring. And so like David, listen, let us pray. Remember me, O Lord. Let us pray. Restore me, O Lord. And number three, like David, pray, rescue me, O Lord. David reminds God that if he doesn't rescue him, then the enemy is going to win over him. When he prays in verse 4, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You see, God has promised to bless David. And David knows that. 
But it feels to David in the moment here as if God is blessing his enemies instead of blessing David. His enemies, they seem to be the ones prevailing while David is suffering. And so David longs here for the Lord's blessing to be turned toward him. And he even reminds God that if he fell to his enemies, then the enemy would see that God has not been faithful to keep his word. And so David, in his prayer, even puts the character of God on the line. God had committed himself to David, and now David prays on the basis of those promises that he had made to David. You see, without God's rescue, David is sure, he is oh so sure, I am not going to make it. God, you need to intervene. And so he cries out to God for his help. And although David expresses the depth of his despair, he still turns to God for help. And this is key. Oh, this is so key. Because the temptation is to turn somewhere else besides God. In fact, sometimes we can be so much in despair or discouraged that we don't even feel like praying. We don't even have the strength to pray. And as we learn in Psalm 12 just last Sunday, man, when you don't even feel like praying, you don't even have it in you to put words to your prayer. Remember the two-word two prayer we learned in Psalm 12, where David just simply cried out, Lord, help. Lord, help. And sometimes that's where we're at. That's all we can muster up within us. And you just cry out and you pray, Lord, help. And the spirit within you knows the rest of prayer. God knows what's in your heart. And so the first step of faith is to turn to the very God who seems to have forgotten you and abandoned you. But when God seems distant, that's when we need to pray the most, even if it's as simple as God, help. Lord, help. Jeremiah 29, 13 reminds us, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. James 4, 8 reminds us, draw near to God and he will do what? Draw near to you. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now these promises are more than enough to get us moving from crying out to God in despair to, to pleading with God in earnest prayer. And that brings us to the place, number three, of rejoicing in God for His steadfast care. You'll notice that there's another pause between verses 4 and 5. Why? why? Why is there extra space in your Bibles between these two verses? Because the journey from pain to praise takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And we have, again, we have no idea how long it took David to journey from verse 1 here in Psalm 13 to verse 5 here. But with God's help, he eventually made his way to rejoicing in God for his steadfast care. He declares, look at it with me in verses 5 and 6. He declares, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David starts with a very simple three-letter word in verse 5. 
And what is that word? It's okay to say it out loud in church. It's the word but. That word but there in verse 5 signals a contrast. It's introducing us to a turning point in David's heart, in his soul. In other words, David, in his, what's going on in his soul here is in contrast to my earlier frame of mind, when it felt like God had forgotten me, now, in contrast to that, now I am rejoicing in God for his steadfast care. You say, why the difference? Why the difference in David's outlook? Why the turning point in David's life? Listen, there, there, here's what you need to understand. There will always be a wide, wide gap between what you know and what you feel. Especially when you are discouraged and in despair. And so it is an act of faith to not only believe in a truth, but also to now live on the basis of that truth. In other words, it's faith that bridges the gap between what I know to be true and what I feel to be true. In these verses, for the first time, David now feels joyful confidence in his soul. He is confident in God's love. He's confident in God's salvation, and he is oh so confident in God's goodness. And this joyful confidence is a dramatic departure from what David felt about God in verse 1. And so somewhere in his journey of lament, God has reminded David, here's what is true. David has chosen to believe it and now to act on it. Notice how David even tilts the direction of his life toward trusting God even while he's still in the midst of his despair. And so there's this this sense of intentionality here when David declares, I have trusted. My heart shall rejoice. I will sing. This is the choice that David is making. And while there are many, many, many things that a person in despair, they cannot control. So much is out of our control. There is much, though, that we can control. You say, what's that? We can do. We can choose to trust. We can choose to hope. And we can choose to sing. And so notice David's joyful confidence here. First of all, David says, I will trust in God's unfailing love. Now, God's unfailing love here, sometimes translated as steadfast love, is God's promise that he will always love us, that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. Or as Del Ralph David says, it's not simply love, but love that has stickum on it. Love that refuses to never let you go. And so in a world that is filled, in a broken, sinful world that is filled with so many trials and troubles that that we as believers often get engaged in, and God allows into our lives, there is no better source of hope than God's unfailing love or steadfast love. David even says in Psalm 103, verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
And so David says, I will. I will trust in God's unfailing love. Second of all, David says, I will hope in God's gracious salvation. And David says this in the future tense. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And salvation here is is more than just deliverance from sin. It certainly includes that, but salvation here means complete well-being. And so why is David able to say this, even though his circumstances haven't really changed much in his life? Because David knows that God is the one who ultimately is in control of his life. He knows that God is the one who can deliver him from his despair. In fact, just listen to what David writes in Psalm 34. Beginning in verse 17, David says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And then third, David says, I will sing to God for his bountiful goodness. And again, David uses the future tense when he says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So think about it again. Nothing has really changed in David's life here, circumstantially. Circumstances are basically the same. And yet, David sings to the Lord. Matthew Henry, long ago commentator, writes, and I quote what he says here, what a surprising change is here in a few lines. In the beginning of the psalm, we have David drooping, trembling, and ready to sink into melancholy and despair. But in the close of it, he's rejoicing in God and elevated and enlarged in his praises. See the power of faith, the power of prayer, and how good it is to draw near to God. This is remarkable. David could only get to this place here by turning to God in prayer in focusing specifically on God's bountiful goodness and grace to him. When David's heart was was oh so heavy and despair, David was blind to the goodness of God in his life. He couldn't see God's goodness. He couldn't see God's grace. And that is so true. Have you not been there? Oftentimes when we are in the pit of despair, we are so discouraged. We focus on the negative and we can't see God's goodness. And it was true of David. But when he turned to God in prayer, and that is the key, this is a turning point in the psalm, and fixed his hope on God, that is when he sang for joy at God's goodness and grace. The circumstances may not have changed. The pain may still be very strong and real in his life. But in the the midst of it all, David looks back and he sees that God has dealt bountifully with him in the past, and that God can be trusted to deal bountifully with him in the present. So David, he looks to God's bountiful acts of goodness and grace in the past in order to find his joy in the present and even his hope in the future, and we must do the same. So let me leave you with one live-it-out lesson from Psalm 13 here. 
Notice this in your notes. We can move from anguish to assurance, from despair to deliverance, from pain to praise, because no matter what we may feel, no matter what we may face in life, God has dealt bountifully with us in Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, church, we have Jesus. And we have all the bountiful benefits of Jesus Christ. And that is the proof of God's steadfast love for you and I. That is how God has dealt bountifully with us. And that is why ultimately we can sing. And so when the dark days seem to never end, we must remember the dark day when Jesus was put to death for our sins. Listen, on the cross of Christ, Jesus was forgotten by God so that we might be remembered by God. God hid his face from his son Jesus so that he might shine his face on us. Jesus' enemies prevailed over him on the cross so that our enemies of of Satan and sin and death might not prevail over us. And so the cross of Jesus Christ is kind of God's way of telling you and me every day, I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten you. I love you. I care for you. And I see you. I mean, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we must never give in to our our felt reality, our, our feelings, if you will. We must never believe, ultimately, that God has forgotten us. We, yes, there are times where we may, like David, feel that God has abandoned us and that he has stopped caring for us that he has even given us over to our enemies, but we must not let our feelings have the last word. Like David. Listen, because of how God has dealt bountifully with us, with Jesus Christ, we, we can move from crying out to God in despair. We can move to pleading with God in prayer, to rejoicing in God for his steadfast care. And so, This morning, if you are feeling a little bit what David felt, may God give you the grace to just be honest with him. May God give you the grace to simply bear your honest feelings to God. But may God also give you the strength to run to him in prayer. And ultimately, may God give you the grace to resolve to rejoice in Him. For God has dealt bountifully with us in Jesus Christ. And there is no place more to remember that as a church family than when we come to the Lord's table and we participate in communion. Well, we remember in an act of worship just how gracious God has dealt with us just how good God has been to us through Jesus Christ. With your heads bowed, Heavenly Father, you have dealt bountifully with us, and so may we learn to trust in your steadfast love. Give us the grace to rejoice in your salvation, even when the anguish and afflictions of this life threaten to overwhelm us. Thank you, Lord, for dealing bountifully with us in Jesus Christ. And so may the joy of your salvation fill our hearts 
and even overcome the times of despair. And Father, I pray that as we come to your table to participate in the Lord's Supper, that we would come with a thankful heart for providing your Son as our substitute on the cross. I pray that as we take the bread and juice, you would renew our faith in your love, and we would surrender ourselves to you in a life of faith. May you be glorified in this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Followers of Jesus Christ, those that you've trusted Christ for your salvation, you have identified with Christ through baptism, you've committed to Christ's body and membership of a local church of like faith and practice. Listen, we, we joyfully encourage you and invite you to participate in communion this morning. You'll find the communion tables located throughout the auditorium, four of them. And as you take the bread and the cup back to your seat, I ask that you would wait so that we may eat and drink together as a church family. The bread and juice represent the the body and the blood of Jesus when he died on the cross. And, And what we do here this morning in participating communion, it reminds us of who our Lord is and how bountifully he has dealt with us. It reminds us what he's done for us, is doing for us, and will yet do for us when he returns. And so music is going to play here. And when it starts playing, you're invited to stand and come and grab the bread and the juice and again take it back to your seat and just wait so that we may take it together. Mm-hmm.